So, okie dokie. Why don't you lift your hands with me? God, we thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this moment to learn about you. Help us to understand you. We thank you for your freedom. And in Jesus' name we pray. And the church says, Amen. Amen. Is Samuel here? He's on media. Okay. Can you shut the door for Everybody going to camp, there's a meeting afterwards. So, we'll give you, uh, we're going to do a blood test, check you for lies. So, I'm joking. So, the last couple weeks, we've had hardly any youth classes because of weather that didn't happen, camp meeting. So, we were actually starting a series, a two-part series, um, but it just, you know, just didn't happen. I'm pretty frustrated about it. So, I'm fighting. I'm literally fighting to have Wednesdays to teach. A couple weeks ago, I preached a service about praise and worship, and I got in like spots and your idea of perfection. Whenever I was praying about it and getting that sermon, I got the sermon about defining perfection. I was like, I want to share this with the young people and the IF members, because every once in a while I get this feeling like this is something I want to define, this is something important. Like the awareness series, or the holiness series, or just certain sermons like, I just want to share this. Problem was, I was going to teach it, and then we had service gets canceled. That Sunday I had to preach, and I was praying over the sermon about praise and worship. I realized this other sermon, they morphed together really, really well. But I still wanted to give that second half of the sermon its own time, its own airspace, where we can really focus on it. Um, because when you're preaching sometimes, you only can focus on certain things to a certain depth. I really want to give it time to flesh out. So I want to work on our perception of perfection. Okay, I want to help define what we view as this is perfect or this is what God has promised me. And some of this stuff you're like, okay, I heard that you preach this. But I really want to take time and deal with like how you view yourself, how you view the promises that God is going to give you, and how you view, specifically we're going to slow real down on how you view people. What are real expectations you're supposed to hold people to? And what are expectations that are never going to be met? Okay, we're going to find like what is like they're sinning and they're wrong. And I'm going to, you know, we're going to have good old-fashioned justice and confrontation. Or like they're not sinning, they're just being stupid. And I'm stupid the same way. We're just going to work on our perception. Okay, so let's start back with this story about Jacob fighting with his father-in-law Laban. Jacob worked seven years uh, and he got the ugly sister, pretty upset. Okay, he wanted the pretty sister. Then he says, listen, I'm pretty mad at you, Laban. I'm going to leave. He said, no, no, it's okay. I'll give you the pretty girl if you uh, work for me seven more years. He said, deal. Okay, 14 years. He's got two wives and a messed up wife. <laughs> so now, after 14 years are over, he's being blessed by God. He's got his own family going. And all of a sudden, there's strife between Laban's farmhands and that's not the biblical word for it, but they're basically farmhands. And his people, they're fighting over herds, they're fighting over possessions. They're just drama in the camp. So he's like, listen, I'm going to leave you, Laban. I'm a grown man. I got my family. I don't want any problems with you. We're just going to move out. Okay, we're going to, you know, imagine if you live, live with your parents when you were 42. There's going to be issues, right? You can't even imagine that. So he's like, I'm going to leave. Laban said, uh-uh. No, uh, don't leave. Those are my daughters. Those are my grandkids. I want you to stay. So I'm going to offer you a deal, Jacob. What do you want from me? And Jacob asked for something that 
was not the best thing you could have asked for. He kind of put himself at a disadvantage, but I think because he knew God was going to do something. He said, I see all of the perfect, blemishless, spotless sheep and goats. Okay, there's no stripes on their coat. There's no spots. They're, they're, they're perfect. And then I see all the speckled and spotted ones. Give me all the speckled and spotted lambs and sheep and goats. And Laban's like, oh, deal. Like, okay, I'll give you all the ugly ones. What a deal, you know. So all of a sudden, Laban goes in. Before he gives Jacob his herd to start with, Laban takes out all the spotted ones, all the speckled ones. And he only gives Jacob the spotless ones. So Jacob has to feed and he has to tend to livestock that are not his. And Laban's idea is, is that these spotless, imperfect sheep will never produce speckled and spotted offspring. So Jacob's never going to get anything. He's trying to manipulate him. And Jacob knows this when he wakes up the next day and sees it. But for whatever reason, he did an act of faith and he took branches and he stripped them to show the, the, the uh, he stripped off the bark to show stripes. And he put it before the eyes of the animals when they went to go eat. What happened was, by a miracle, those spotless sheep and those stripeless goats began to produce offspring that had speckles and spots. It just contradicted biology. It should have happened. But God was honoring him. And all of a sudden, it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And now he has this one herd that he separated that are his. And they're speckled and they're striped. And over here, he has this perfect flock that are not his. And it says he separates them and he looks at them. Now, you understand... These speckled and spotted sheep, they're not ideal, okay? First off, the way they've happened, it took a miracle, it took a struggle, it took God helping him through pain and bitterness. It took, he was at disadvantage. Just merely even having anything, it took a fight. This is probably not how Jacob thought his life would go when God told him as a young man, I'm going to bless you. He didn't think about having to work 14 years for what he was promised. He didn't think he'd have to rely on a miracle just to get anything. So these sheep represent struggle. Okay, he's got his promise, but it's way more painful than I imagined. And also, they also represent an unidyllic situation because in the sacrificial system, God asks for spotless sheep, spotless animals, so that you, when you offered them, it represented they were sinless. It represented sinlessness. It go on to represent Jesus. He was spotless, the spotless lamb. The Bible called him. And because he's sinless, he died for all of us. We're the speckled and spotted ugly goats and sheep. And he redeems us. So in the sacrificial system, how you would pay your tithe, how you would pay, even because they had a government, how you would pay for certain things. It was, you, you pray for spotless sheep. Okay, you're not like, God, give me speckled ones. Because they're just not as usable. Okay, they're not as convenient. The Passover, spotless lamb, put that on the doorpost. You're in a bind if you look around, all your sheep are spotted and speckled. You're like, I need a spotless one. So the spotless ones are kind of like the iPhones of the biblical story. And the speckled and striped ones are kind of like the Android of the biblical story. Like, okay, you know, a phone's a phone, but you know what I'm saying? You kind of want the perfect situation. And Silas gets a bad spirit. But, <laughs> so this represents issues. They're not sinful, these speckled and spotted sheep. They themselves are sinful. It just isn't an allegory. It represents something. It's what God asked and sacrificed. But them being there, these are not sinner sheep. Okay, God is not blessing a sinful situation. It's not their fault they're ugly. You know what I'm saying? But you can see how Jacob 
looking at a perfect flock and saying, God, I thought that I would have the best. I thought when you said that if I obey you and walk with you, you would give me a perfect situation, that your blessings and power. I didn't think I'd have to struggle for my wife and for my family. I didn't think I'd have to fight with people I love and trust. I didn't think that when I had to invest, it wouldn't grow without, without ease and, 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 and passion. So he's, he's trapped really looking at the ideal situation that's not his. In a, a situation with struggles and pains and spots and stripes that is his. And he can be very, it's very easy for Jacob to say God didn't keep his promise. Because he sees speckles and spots. These are not the speckles and spots of willful sinning. These are the speckles and spots of struggle, pain, confusion, hiccups, uh, occasional stumbling. This is the speckles and spots of people being people, hurting you, them not being all that you thought they would be. But you got to realize, even with the speckles and spots in any situation, it's still what God promised you. For instance, your word per, for perfect is different than God's idea of perfection. Your idea of perfect is like movie magic. It is uh, ease. Uh, there's no struggle. There's no strife. There's no pain. It's perfect. It's living in the Bahamas. It's, it's sipping lemonade. You know, it's, it's amazing. Perfect. I want quote-unquote perfect. When I refer to your word for perfect, I'm going to do this, okay? It's an action lesson. So you chase this idea of perfect, okay? You chase it when you start dating. The perfect person. And bless God, when you find them, you're going to think, they're the perfect person. And every married couple knows, like, wait a second, what happened to them? Are they willfully sinning? No. Are they, are they, are they doing drugs? No. They're just not perfect anymore. They're a person. You're marrying a person, Okay? They're not meant to meet your idea of perfection. They're meant to meet God's idea of perfection. And it's totally different. The problem is, though, you can be chasing a wrong idea and not realize God's kept his deal. And you're bitter at God because you're using different terms. So your idea of perfection is God makes you omniscient. Bless God. God makes you omnipotent. You have all the answers every time you need them. You say the perfect thing at the perfect time. You never get angry. You never get sad. You never get insecure. Bless God, you're perfect. You got perfect hair, perfect skin. Glory to God. He frees you and changes you. You're perfect. You prayed for it and God made you perfect. But that hasn't happened yet, has it? Like, God, God hasn't answered your prayers seemingly, has he? I'm telling you tonight, he has answered your prayers. He just brought you to a different point. You're aiming for this and God's aiming for this. He's fulfilling his idea of perfect and you're still chasing yours. It's a danger to be trapped by imagination, chasing this out here and not realizing God's already blessed you. Okay, the Israelites show up and they're like, land of milk and honey. Bless God, amazing. He's, but then they saw giants and lions and tigers and bears, oh my. They saw struggle and strife and pain. They said, this isn't what God promised us. It is what he promised you. It, it, the prayer has been answered, but they were put off by their speckles and spots. This isn't the person God promised me. This isn't the friend that I've been praying for because they got mad at me at one youth night. This isn't the parent that, bless God, my parents are to be more like Jesus. They snapped at me about my room. Like, we're holding people by wrong ideas of what it means to be right with God or what it means to be our ideas of perfection. They saw spots. They saw speckles. This isn't our promised land. For instance, let's deal firstly with, with what God means by perfection. Hebrews 10 says that with one sacrifice, Jesus Christ bought, he perfected all, everybody, 
that is currently being sanctified or being perfected. Seems contradictory. God perfected everybody that is being perfected. How can you be a thing but yet still be becoming that thing? It's the same way the Bible says the Lamb, Jesus, was di he died on the cross before the world was ever made. You know he didn't. You know it happened at a place in time. But God knew because he's beyond time. He foresaw it. He already experienced it in a way that we can't fathom. He's already prepared for it. The same thing is happening in this verse. He bought for you the finished product that will be you when you're taken up into heaven. And he gives you a glorified body. And he takes away pain and sickness and temptation. When you get to heaven, you receive the full perfection he bought for you in this verse. When you get born again of the water and the spirit, and when you make it, he gives you the fullness of it. But you only receive that if you are one of those that is being perfected. You're in a process of becoming still. It's like this. When you get saved, that's called redemption. Born again of the water and the Spirit. Bless God. Jesus name, baptism. Got the Holy Ghost. Spoke in their tongues. You entered into this thing. Then you continue. That middle space is called sanctification. He that endures to the end shall be saved. The Bible says. Hebrews says that don't neglect this salvation. Continue on. Treat it right. Galatians 5, Paul says, walk after the Spirit, and you won't feel the needs of your flesh. Walking, continuing, growing, going. Bible says, Ephesians, grow into the full stature of Christ, meaning saved people have to grow. This is important. You may realize this, but some people think when you get in, you're done. You have to continue. You have to walk. You have to being perfected. So when it says, when God said uh, to, to uh, Abraham, walk with me and be perfect, he wasn't saying... I'm going to make you perfect. He's saying, walk in my perfecting plan. Walk with me. Hebrews says that Abraham was never made perfect until he's taken up like us. That he has to wait on the church to go to heaven. So what is God asking him to do? He's saying, walk in my will. Walk in my perfect plan. What it, so what does that mean in a nutshell? John says, you've been born again. Walk with God. And if you do sin... We still can confess our sins and he'll still forgive us. But I'm writing this that you don't sin. And he talks about there's a difference between like, oops, I sinned, and like willfully sinning and just saying I'll repent about it. He's saying don't willfully sin. But even walking with God, he has baked into the plan how to deal when you stumble. So you can repent, get back up again, not abuse his grace, and continue on. You always are growing forward. You're always walking with God, and you're reading the word, and you may have trials and struggles, but you, you walk in his grace. What I'm saying is you don't have to be a perfect person to use God's will and his grace in his perfect way. When he used the word perfect, it's a process. When you use the word perfect, you're done. You're perfected. you got no issues. you got no problems. God doesn't ask you to be perfect finished, he's asking you to walk with him continuously. To walk in his path of perfection. So when you're walking with God, you're praying, God, when I become this thing. Now, I'm not saying blatant sin. I'm not saying just say, we're just people. We're never going to be perfect. I'm not saying any of those things. I'm saying we wait until we become something we're never going to become before we say, oh, God has made me a person that is strong. God is, the biggest miracle God will ever do for you is going to be you. And if you never realize that because you're chasing a wrong idea of perfection and you don't realize how perfecting he is working in your life now, you'll never thank him for you. And your perception of perfection will rob you of having confidence and joy and peace.
You'll thank God for the job and you'll thank God for your friend, but you never feel good about you and you'll never feel secure in your salvation because you have a wrong perception of perfection. You understand what I'm saying? Now, I can't believe I didn't turn on this slide. You're not going to warn me next time. You know, you work so hard on these slides and it's going to play again. Bless God. For instance, Jesus' life, okay? We're dealing with tier number one, the person that is you. Jesus' life, he's a perfect lamb, spotless lamb. Didn't sin, but his life, people he loved, reject him, hurt him. His mama trying to get him to do things, and he's like, woman, it's not my time yet. Like, his life is not perfect, but he is perfect. Okay? They nail him to a cross. People he loved, Peter and Judas, reject him. He comes to his people that he created, and they, they curse him and blaspheme him. If you were Jesus, and God said, you know, I'm going to use you and bless you and everything, and when things started to break and people started to hate you, you'd go, uh, check please, this is, not, this is not what I anticipated. Where's the perfect plan of God? You're in His perfect will. It's just not meeting your ideas of perfection. You're looking at the idyllic flock and saying there'll be no pain, no suffering, no struggle, no questions, and you're not realizing that God is blessing your life, but there's speckles and there's spots, and you want to accept the abundance that He's growing in you. Jesus knew, I'm in the perfect will of God, but my life, Jack, isn't perfect. And your life will never be perfect. Here's, a, here's some quick questions. Are, am I blatantly sinning? Am I willfully sinning? No? Okay. Uh, when I do struggle, do I, do I have a constant diet of the word? Am I talking to God? Do I have a, a habit that can protect me, a walk with God? Yes? Okay. Do I have submission? Do I plug into a church? Do I believe in the truth? Do I have a pastor? Yes. Those steps, you're walking. You're walking with God. You're not deceiving yourself. You're growing. You're going. And when you stumble, you're picking it back up. You're on His path. And then you can finally feel good about you. You can feel, you can feel saved. You can feel confident. You can feel right with God and still not be perfect. Now, I have to give that disclaimer again. This is not navigating willful sinning, you know, at the end, like, terms may apply. Now, I want to deal with, there's the person that is you. Let's talk about the promises. Like I said before, Israel walks in, they see Jericho, they see issues. I have done this where like I pray for something. God, please give it to me. And God gives it to me. And I get there and there's struggles. I get there and there's, there's pain and there's hiccups. And, it's, and I'm like, I, I, I don't think maybe God didn't answer my prayer. Maybe happenstance opened this door. Maybe it was just random. Maybe I just got lucky. And you start erasing the fingerprints of God on this promised land because you don't think if God's involved, there wouldn't be speckles and spots and thorns and struggles. Because it can't be God if there's struggles, if there's pain. If people that God's put in my life, if they hurt me, they can't be from God. If, if, if people are still people, if the job is still a job, you, one day, when money matters greatly, some of you are already here, you're going to pray for the ideal job. God, give me the job. He's going to give you what he promised you. And then you're going to get there, and three months later, you're like, oh, God, I don't know if this is the one. My boss is mean. Uh, I get up really early. I just, and you're going to rob yourself and God. Israel's walking in their promised land, but they lose it because they forgot that they got it because they're distracted by speckles and spots. We do this with our churches. We do this with our youth groups. We do this with, with different phases of life. You're talking yourself out now for why you're not blessed as a teenager, but you're waiting to be blessed as a young adult because you see speckles and spots in this season that you assume will be there in the next season. Jack, they're going to be there in that season too. You're going to have more problems out there than you do now. You're waiting and waiting and waiting when God gives this thing that makes you this person. But those spots will never go away. You're always going to have 
pain in life and struggle in life, you're always going to be fickled. Let's talk about people, other people, mm -hmm. other people in your life. You know, the people, you know, you're, you're perfect. You got no flaws, you got no problems. Other people, it's other people's issues, okay? I'm going to walk you and I down this, this perception-forming idea so we can view people rightly. God is not asking you to be omniscient and to always be understanding. God is not asking you to always have the right words. He's not asking you to never be afraid or be angry. He's just asking you to, when you are those things, to deal with it properly. To live out His Word in your life. When these things come, I then act according to God's will. For instance, when you're looking at other people, be careful not to mischaracterize what they're doing. We often do this. Someone will do a thing that is merely just something that people do. And we'll say, uh, sin, moral, moral weakness, you're a bad person. Okay? We do this a lot. We, we get inflammatory. We're just, we get kind of dramatic about it. And for instance, let's say like all men have this proclivity to use anger. Okay? Now the women are like, oh my God, I know. You know, my dad and, and my brothers. Okay, men using anger is the same thing when women cry. But it's not as intimidating when a woman's bawling her eyes out as it is when a man's like, ah. okay? A woman's like, my life is awful. And a man's like, my life is awful. And you're like, bro, chill out. Chill out. You got issues. You got anger management. It's the same outlet, okay? Just, just how men do it, how women do it. But we mischaracterize how men do it, and we're like, oh, that poor woman. Oh. Okay? You can't, can't mischaracterize people. Okay, so when your parents get mad at you because you haven't cleaned your room in six years, don't go, you're not like Jesus. Okay, be careful to hold them, not to hold them to an idea of perfection while they're still meeting God's idea of a perfect parent and a perfect obedient person. Be careful to do that with your peers. Be careful to do that with your boss. Because sometimes they may do something that, yeah, makes you angry. And sometimes they may be, even be wrong, but that doesn't mean they're sinful. There is a, you got to have nuance to this thing when it comes to people. There is an area where someone can be a human and wrong, but not yet sinful, right? We know this. You know how we know it? Because we're like, we tell it to ourselves, you know, I wasn't wrong. And if I was wrong, it wasn't too bad. But other people, we go, you're either good to me or you're bad to me. And what I learned is we kind of want to make people puppets. Like if someone gets mad at us or does something, we're like, we, we want them to conform to our ideas because we're selfish people. That's fine. Just acknowledge it. We're all selfish. So when someone does something that's not pleasing to us, we don't need to automatically say, they're just a bad person. Okay? I know usually we think this way in a couple of days. You chill out. Like, I love my mom and dad. I love my friends at church. You cool off. And you're like, man, I was crazy. I almost ripped their throat out. Just You have to define what is acceptable in a relationship. Okay? Your dad gets mad at you because you didn't take the trash. That's righteous indignation. God approves of this. Okay? But if he beats you over the head with a crowbar, he took it too far. Okay? There is a spectrum to this thing. We all know this. Don't hold your people in your life to this unrealistic idea. They can't be angels. They're people. Okay? We want people to be angels and we want people to let us be people. That's how it works. I want you to be an angel and I want you to be like, oh, they're just a person. Okay? But don't conflate when someone's sinful when someone's a person. In our desire to be all that we can be and to grow, sometimes we lose the nuance of this. We just want all or nothing. Either you're excellent or you're garbage. There's a spectrum to this thing. Let people be afraid. Let people be fearful. Let people have room to be people. 
And if someone blatantly sins or abuses you or wrongs you, deal with it the way the Bible says. But you got to make sure you see people rightly. Don't hold them to a wrong idea of perfection. The second thing in this is when you see someone has weakness, don't run screaming. When I say weakness, someone has the potential to struggle with something. I'm not saying they are struggling with that thing. The closer you get to people in your life, the more deeper the relationships you have, you're going to see everybody has a plethora of weaknesses and it's going to make you have an existential crisis. One day, you understand this, when you were 10, you thought your parents were amazing. And now you're like, when I grow up, I'm doing things differently, bless God, right? Because you're getting a more mature perspective and you're seeing spots and speckles and stripes, okay? Doesn't mean they're wrong or sinful. Just means you're getting a idea they're not perfect, but they're in God's perfect will and they're being the perfect godly parent for you. Mess ups and hang ups and all. And so when you get close to people though, if someone like gives in to something, you deal with it. If someone's giving into, for instance, like if someone gives into like anger, like I said before, and they're they're beating people, you deal with it. But if you see someone like, you know, they just kind of get angry, but they don't do anything about it. Don't be like, I can't trust you because I see weakness in you. You know why? Because they see your weaknesses too. Sin is when you give in to your weakness. Sin is not just that you have weakness. Okay, that your idea of perfection has to be very defined. We all have weaknesses. That does not mean we are sinful. When you get into those weaknesses, that's when it's sinning. But what I do and you do is when we get close to people and we see that they're even, that there's weaknesses present, we're like, I can't trust anybody. Everybody's got flaws. For instance, Paul said to God, I have a weakness, remove it from me, a thorn in my flesh. He's not saying I'm falling to it. God says, I'm not going to remove it. In your weakness, my strength is made perfect. Don't you love a word just click together? I'm telling you what, we've been building this whole thing just to drop it there. Perfect. He's not meaning, Paul, you're going to be a perfect person, but when you walk with me, I'm going to, I'm going to help you get through this weakness. And he's not telling Paul, it's okay, just go and sin and just use repentance and grace. In, my, in, my, in your weakness, I'm just going to give you love. That's not what he's saying. Because Paul even says, don't blatantly sin and just say you're going to repent. So what is God telling Paul? He's saying, listen, you have a weakness. You're not giving into this weakness, but you're waiting for me to take this vulnerability from you before you feel whole. You're always going to be human. You don't have to give into it. Here's how. You come to me and you walk on the path with me. You'll never be done. You'll never feel perfect, but you can use my grace right and use my word right. You can be on the path of it. Paul was thinking, I can't believe in my ministry. I can't trust other people. I can't let them trust me until I am robbed and taken and formed from all my weaknesses. And God's like, you're going to have fears and doubts. You're going to have temptations. Don't have to let them shape your life. Come to me and let me deal with them. That's the difference between being a perfect person and letting God perfect you. God does that to us, and you want your peers to do that to you. But we have this, even I, when I see someone have a weakness, I want to run. Because I'm like, everybody, like, we develop, now I'm going to clarify this. We develop intimacy issues. That's not something just for marriage. You're going to develop, I can't have friends as a grown person. 
or the older I get, the, the less I trust people. I can't have close friends like I did when I was younger. I, you know, I see now my pastor's human. And now, you know, I, it was easier to believe in a man of God when I had this idyllic vision. But now that I see that he gets angry sometimes or he says something stupid sometimes, he just, maybe he's not the one for my life. You have a wrong idea of perfection. He's in your perfect plan. He's in the perfect will of God. But he's not a perfect person. Is he sinful? No. Is he abusive? No. Is your parent sinful? No. Is your peer sinful? No. See what I'm saying? You have to have a right idea. What am I asking to be? And what is God asking me to be? Otherwise, you'll have no trust in those around you because you'll always be like, no one's ever going to match up. And you're like, I just have to be man on an island. Okay? I don't know how long I've gone. I'm going to finish up very quickly. I've been spitting some fire. I know I have. It's okay. Okay? I ended the sermon with this, but I was going to cut it out, but I, I want to be more honest with you as young people and young adults. A uh, neurologist was talking on a podcast one time that I was listening to. He was saying there's a horizontal plane that you can't see. That when your eyes go below that plane, your brain triggers serotonin, makes you sleepy, makes you sad, makes you like lethargic. And uh, when you look above that horizontal line, you look, you triggers dopamine, uh, energy, purpose, passion, creativity. Okay, he says it's very, very important to realize that your body shapes you that much because your eyes are part of your brain. Your brain is trapped in darkness, but your eyes tell your brain what to perceive. We often think that our body and what we feel is, is just a symptom of what we believe deep down in our brain. But we don't realize how we feel on the inside and what we think on the inside is often shaped by how we move and how we look in our lives. You get up, you take a cold shower, you do a couple push-ups, life feels great. You eat a whole box of donuts, you're going to feel pretty bad. So you wait for your feelings to change, you've got to change how you live. You know what I'm saying? So he's saying we've noticed like if you put your computer screen up higher, you get more energetic. It's not the book's fault. It's not the computer's fault. It's not even your job's fault. It's your posture. It's how you're using your eyes. I was like, whoa, perception determines how you feel, not the other way around. The Bible says if your eye be bad, you look at bad things, your body be filled with darkness. But if your eyes full of light, your body be filled with light. He doesn't say that your body is going to determine what you look at, vice versa. Meaning your perception is shaped by what you look at. And it shapes how you feel about yourself and other people. you got to perceive right to feel right. Okay? And I'm reminded of when Elisha's servant walked outside and he saw the enemy surrounding the town. And there was a lot of them and he thought he was going to die. He runs into Elisha and says, we're going to die. It's over. I'm sorry. Elisha said, God opened his eyes. And he went back. And when he looked up, he saw God's army on the mountaintop. Here's the thing. That army was already there. He just didn't see it. The enemy was there. The army of God was there. But he didn't see it. He looked down. He sees problems. He looks up. He feels differently. Okay? I'm not trying to be self-helpy. I'm telling you that how you look, how you think, what you focus on shapes you. Not the other way around. It, it defines you. God is already there, but it's not helping him because he's not fixed his eyes on the heels where his help comes from, as the Bible says. Let's get more specific. A, neuro, a neurologist was talking about also that, that there are uh, pupils in your eyes to help you communicate with other people. If your eyes were the same color, you wouldn't get along. You would, you'd be like, hey, what are you looking at? Eyes on me. You wouldn't be able to do that. 
You'd be like, are they listening to me? I don't know. So God designed your eyes with like a bullseye in them. You communicate with your eyes because I can't see what you're thinking. Your mind's trapped in darkness. But I can kind of tell what you're focused on by what you look at. If you're looking at the TV over there, I think they're thinking about what's on the TV. If you're looking at that person, they're thinking about, man, that's an ugly dress. You know, I can kind of tell what you're thinking about what you're looking at. He said that it's, it is important because like in animals where they can't communicate very clearly verbally, they can communicate with their eyes. They can fix on the same target and know what each other's thinking by what they're focused on. Danger, prey, food, they communicate with where they point the bulls out of their eyes. The Bible says in the upper room they were one accord. A church gets in one accord when they all fix their eyes on the same thing. The same ideas about God, the same ideas about truth, the same ideas about devotion. Being in one accord is not that we're all like hooping and hollering together. We're all having the same perceptions of God and what we're doing and how we're walking. Why is this important? For instance, he said that if I'm talking to like Silas at a restaurant and there's someone over there, someone over there, and a TV over there, it's all true, it's all happening, and I could look at any of it and I could be distracted. It's all real, but when I look at Silas, I'm showing him that he is the most real thing in my life now. Because he thinks if my eyes are pointed to him, more often than not, I'm focused and I value him. You ever speak to somebody and they're not looking at you? You're like, they're not talking to me. They're distracted. You feel like you're that of the highest value because you see what they're looking at. Okay? When that servant went back and he looked up at God's army, the enemy's still real. Okay? It's still true. But when he looked at God, he saw that God was true too. Sometimes you wait until there's no problems, no pain, no speckles and spots. And then God is real. And then God's promise is real. And then your peace is real. And then your character is real. If there's no more spots, then I am fixed. But these things were happening at the same time. But it was a matter of perception. I'm saying that when you go into your life looking at you, you're still always going to have spots and troubles and pains. And you have to look at them and deal with them, but don't look at them as a higher value as when you look at God. You have to prioritize how much you look at God more than you look at your problems. You're saying that's the highest truth. Now, here's what I want to get to. Never in human history have we been able to look at more frames of reference, more views ever before. There's more anxiety, more pain, more insecurity, more addiction going on now than ever before because you have a window to the world. And you're looking... Someone shot somebody over there. A school got blown up over there. Their politicians doing that over there. Australia's doing that over there. You're seeing everything and it's burdening you down. And you're like, I don't remember. You even hear your parents say and your grandparents used to be happier. People used to be happier. Like they would sit in waiting rooms and talk to people. Everybody's so depressed now. Why? We're not shaping our perceptions. We have no maturity about how much we look at each thing. So we're looking at things that are true. Yeah, it's true. It's real. And you're like, until the world is fixed, then I'll thank God. Until my problems are gone, then. But they're going to be there. The world has always been broken. The problem is we're staring at it longer than we're staring at God. Let me make it plain. You need to have a moment every day where you have a spiritual encounter. You read His Word. You talk to God in private. Because... It's not enough to know that God is there. You have to see that He is there. And when you talk to God, your brain goes, there's something eternal, there's something higher than my little day. It makes you feel plugged in. It makes you not feel as small. 
you're, you're living in a bigger frame of reference. There's a beginning and end. There's a story. There's a hierarchy. He's shaping me, molding me. I have significance. But when you just look at this world, you have a wrong view of yourself. You're not anchored by the eternal. For instance, I know how your summer goes. Here's how this goes. You have watched so much Facebook, so much YouTube, played so much video games, watched so many movies, and it's not wrong. You're not watching anything bad, but you just like, you don't want to get up. You're like, who needs friends? I have everything I have here. I have Cheetos and my movie. I don't need people. I thought I needed people, but I don't. And then you're like, why do I feel so sad now? Like, why do I feel depressed? I mean, I just watched Pinocchio, but I, just, I don't like me. And you go outside in the sunny day, and you're like, you're like burning. It's like a vampire. You hate real life now. What is it? You are viewing dream worlds. You're like, man, I wish that I had friends like that. They're not real, Jack. They're not real. You're never going to have friends like the movie. Never going to happen. And you're seeing these characters that have significance. They're doing big things. They're, they're, they're important. And everybody knows they're important. Everybody knows who the hero is. And people respect them. Nobody has a life like that. But we don't realize that when we fix our eyes on make-believe for so long, we don't even see the sun. And so what happens is you start putting yourself down because your perception is too focused on mundane, unreal things. I promise you, I'm trying to formulate a good way of saying it. There's a delusion we live in now. You think my life's not moving fast enough, my life's too boring. Mm, your life's normal. The problem is you're watching a three-hour movie with a climax and a build and significance of fulfillment. No one's life moves like that. It doesn't happen. You're comparing your life to an idea of perfection that is never going to happen. YouTubers are doing it to you. Instagram's doing it to you. Movies are doing it to you. And you're like, God's not real. He doesn't bless anybody anymore. There's no joy, no peace. I'm broken. You need to fix your eyes on something eternal more than you fix your eyes on something momentary. I'm not saying strip your life of entertainment. I'm saying that you need to plug in and fix your eyes on something consistently that when you do have these things, they don't warp your view of self. You know what I'm saying? Because it will shape you. It will mold you. And you won't feel good about you. And there's no reason for you to feel that way. Why don't you stand with me?